0: One of my mentors, uh, Greg Dixon, when I was in Indianapolis, used to say to us uh, on the staff, he said, boys, be ready to preach with a moment's notice and to die with none. Isn't that good? Be ready to preach with a moment's notice and to die with none. And so I've gotten to do this a few times Really, it doesn't bother me a whole lot, and I'll tell you why, because I also believe Dr. Lakin used to say, preach from the overflow, and what he meant by that is you ought to always be so studied up that you have something to say on behalf of the Lord, and I urge you to do that in witnessing to people, and so I ought to be able to think like that too, that I've been so much in God's Word that, Well, it's just you can talk about God's Word and you can talk about Jesus. And um, there are people that can preach better than me, but there's not anybody who can preach a better gospel than me, because there's just one, isn't there? There's just one, and if I preach it, I'm preaching the best message that people ever heard. Now, in the book of Acts today, chapter 1, what did you think I would talk about this morning? We're we're examining here this Acts chapter 2 church. We believe that Acts chapter 2, that the church there that uh, came together after, well, actually, we believe that Jesus founded the church in his own ministry, but that he empowered the church. And as they came together and they began to pray, that uh, the church was especially empowered to do its work throughout the centuries. And so I've been emphasizing to you that the Acts chapter 2 church is our model. Our model for ministry today will not be found in the current church growth book that we buy off the shelves of, at, a, at a, uh, a place that sells Christian literature. Our model will not, or our pattern for our church will not be the pattern of a church that uh, maybe is doing well somewhere in America today. Our model, our pattern, our example church is found in the Bible. That way it never changes. The principles are eternal, if you will, for the church. And so I've so far emphasized to you that the church of Acts chapter 2 is characterized by four things. And I keep repeating them because I want you to know them even without looking at notes or I want you to know them by heart. First of all, the church at Acts chapter 2 had a big vision. They were visionary people. They, They were big thinkers. And here's how they thought that the gospel is supposed to go to the whole world. That's about as big as it can get, isn't it? And it was to involve every creature Every individual person. So that's the vision. The whole world and every single individual in it. They had a big vision. And secondly, prayer was their priority activity. And as I read through these opening chapters in the book of Acts, these people are always praying. They're praying about everything. If, if, uh, if they thought big, they prayed big as well. It was their priority activity over and over and over. They stopped whatever they were doing, and they began to pray. And then this was a witnessing church. They were always and forever witnessing. And they weren't having church visitation programs. This wasn't a special planned uh, emphasis at the church. In the normal course of their life, going and coming and working and whatever they were doing with their families and so on, they just spoke to everyone that they had an opportunity to. They spoke to them about the Savior. And if prayer was their priority activity, then witnessing was their primary activity. They were always and forever witnessing everywhere and to everybody. Everybody. And then, fourthly, they were making disciples. They weren't just focused on a decision. In fact, today, I have become less and less enamored by decisions. I hear somebody report all these decisions, and frankly, I'm not very impressed because after 40-some years of experience, you know what I found out? There's a lot of that seed falls on ground, as I told you last week, and people will make a profession, but nothing will, there will be no reality to it. So I'm interested in sharing the gospel with everyone with whom I can share it, but I'm also interested in seeing them become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm looking for fruit. I'm looking for reality. Aren't you today in people's lives? And so a profession is one thing, but a disciple is something else, and they emphasize that. Now, there's another theme, though, running through the book of Acts that I don't want you to miss, and it's the theme of the ministry of the Holy Spirit running through the whole book. In fact, the, the, the book is named The Acts of the Apostles, but I want you to understand something. The names of the books of the Bible are not inspired. They were put there by human beings. And so the name of the book was not an inspired name. Men put that as they, as they put our Bible together. The acts of the apostles, someone has suggested, suggested, could just as easily be called the acts of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who is working throughout all the pages of the book of Acts here. And when I mention the Holy Spirit, let me just quickly up front say something to you that needs to be said in America today. There has been so much fanaticism, so much fanaticism, so much false teaching on the subject of the Holy Spirit that people connect it with fanaticism. People connect it with, being a holy roller. I know Baptist preachers that don't even want to talk about it because in their area of of ministry, in their community, the teaching of the Holy Spirit has become so much a a misunderstood doctrine. They think that if you talk about the Holy Spirit in a church service, that really what you're doing is uh, becoming a holy roller or some sort of emotionally... Excessive type thing. I'm not talking about that at all. No, I'm not talking about that at all. But I do think that we have woefully and sinfully neglected the great doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Vance Havner, the mountain preacher, said it like this. He said, we have been subnormal so long that if we became normal... Everybody would think we were abnormal. That about says it, doesn't it? We have been subnormal so long in American Christianity that if we became normal, people would think we were abnormal. They would think that we're sort of fanatical. Because when a person's cold and uninterested, then any degree of uh, emphasis is to them, perhaps you're overhyping the subject. So today, I want to talk to you about the ministry of the Holy Spirit here in the Acts chapter 2 church. And first of all, I want you to read with me from God's Word, Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. And being assembled together with them, Jesus, speaking here, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. Underscore in your Bible that term, the promise of the Father. What is the promise of the Father? And if you'll go over to chapter 1 and verse number 8 again, he said, after you receive the promise of the Father, you will have power. He means spiritual power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses... The direct result of the Holy Spirit's coming well, you will you Is that you will be witnesses unto me Both in Jerusalem And in all Judea Surrounding area, the region And in Samaria A little further out And then ultimately to the uttermost part of the earth Keep your hand there If you will please And uh, turn back to the book of John Chapter 14 and One book behind here Just a few chapters back And I want you to read with me some wonderful and important words. John 14 and verse 16. And we're talking about the coming of the promise of the Father. And Jesus said in John 14 and 16 that night to his disciples, I will pray the Father and he will give you another comforter. See the capital C at the front of that word denoting deity? He's talking about God the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. I will pray the Father. The promise of the Father is that he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you. Say the next two words with me, forever. He's not a commuter. He doesn't come and go. He's going to come and abide in you and with you forever. Once he comes, go with me over to chapter number 16, if you will. John 16 and verse 7. This is the reiterated message of the Lord here. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, he said to the disciples that same night. It is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the comforter won't come. But if I depart... I will send him, not it, him, the blessed Holy Spirit. I will send him unto you. Now, go back to Acts chapter three. I'm going to send you the comforter. I'm going to send you someone who is going to come and stay with you forever, as I emphasized. All right, let's go to chapter three, verse one of the book of Acts. And let's read about him coming. I said chapter three, I meant chapter two. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord. There's that wonderful unity and love that this Acts chapter two church had for one another. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the house where they were sitting How would they know that the promise of the Father, how would these disciples know that the Holy Spirit had actually come? Well, there had to be some sign, some confirmation, if you will, that the the promise that Jesus had made to them in John 14 and 16 had actually occurred. And so this rushing mighty wind came upon the place where they were gathered and it filled the room, the house where they were, the sound of a rushing mighty wind. You may want to circle the word wind there in your Bible in Acts 2 and uh, in verse number 2. The word wind in the Greek language is pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, like pneumonia a disease of the breathing of the lungs. It's always associated with the idea of breath. Wind. The literal translation was would be wind or breath every time that it's used. Pneuma, we talk about a pneumatic hammer. It uh, is powered by air. We talk about pneumonia, a disease of the lungs, that disease of the air passages. That word. The Holy Spirit, the word Spirit itself, is the breath of God, if you will. And how would they know that he had come that day? How would you know if the Holy Spirit had come and the promise of the Father was fulfilled? Well, there was this rushing, powerful, mighty wind filled the place. It was an audible sign. You could hear it. And you could see when. Do you remember what Jesus said over in the book of John chapter 3 and verse 8? He's talking to Nicodemus and he connects the same thing. He says that the wind bloweth whithersoever it will. And what did he say? You hear it. You can't see the wind blow. You don't know that the wind is blowing other than that you can see the effects of the wind. But you can't... You can't see the wind as it blows, but you can see the debris that it blows along with it, and you can hear the sound of it. And so on this day, the blessed breath of God, the Holy Spirit came upon this assembly of people as they prayed, and they saw the result of that, and they heard the audible sound of it. And then continue with me in the reading. In verse 3, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. Now, it doesn't mean a tongue like the organ in your mouth. It's what we say. We, we sit and look at a fireplace, and we will say, look at the fire licking on those pieces of wood. We use the term that flames are licking up around it. You've, you've seen that, haven't you, and heard that? And we use this analogy of, of little tongues little protrusions, if you will, of the fire licking up around the embers, whatever it may be burning. And so you have an audible sign, a rushing mighty wind, and you have a visible sign, the licking of these flames upward as they see these flames of fire, this supernatural fire surrounding each person who is in that room. Because God was giving them a visible sign the Holy Spirit had come. Why doesn't God do that today? Because he's already fulfilled that. This was a one-time event. And you've never seen anybody, and you read all about all the great Christians, and none of them had flames of fire around their face or tongues of fire licking up around them. God was confirming, I have kept, The promise I have sent the Holy Spirit for one time in all of history. Now people will know that He has come. Notice in verse 3 the term each of them, each of them. So every one of the people had the signs that the Holy Spirit had come. It was confirmation audibly and visibly the Holy Spirit had come upon them. Now we call this. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Listen to me carefully. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes upon us. The Holy Spirit indwells us when we are saved. Say that back to me. When does the Holy Spirit come on a Christian? When we are saved. Every Christian, every Christian. If you do not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit living within you, you're not a Christian. If all you did was give some sort of mental, intellectual assent to the gospel of Christ, you're part of that seed that never did sprout. Because Jesus said in John chapter 3 and verse 5, listen to Jesus, I don't have time to turn to every reference I want to use, but in John 3 and 5, what did Jesus say? you must be born again. And except a man be born again of the water and of the, say it, spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you like came that day, you're a pseudo-Christian. You think you are a Christian, but you have been deceived because the heart of Christianity is that Jesus Christ's spirit, the Spirit of God, the breath of God comes and fills a man's heart and soul and mind and then dwells there and lives there lives there and why did I get you to say a while ago he will stay with you forever because he's not a commuter. If you've been saved, he doesn't come and go and come and go. He lives there forever. We've, have, we got that, have we got that really tied down now as a church? To be saved is to be indwelled by the Spirit of God. Look with me in the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Turn over there real quick. I hate to take time to turn, but boy, you've got to get this if we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 church. And in Romans chapter 8, in verse number 9, I read these words. You are not in the flesh, meaning you're not living dominated by the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be the Spirit, all these are capital S's, of course, referring to the Holy Spirit. If so be the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, He is none of his. You see that in your Bible? Mark it in your Bible. If you're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then my friend, you're not his. You're not a believer. The work of regeneration, of being born again, is hearing the word of God, the gospel, believing it, clinging to it, relying upon it, and then the Holy Spirit comes and he reproduces himself. In your life, His Spirit lives within me this morning. Now, one other thing I want to show you real quickly because I know you're thinking about it. Go back to Acts chapter two, and in Acts chapter number two, we come down to verse four, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, stop. This is a different experience. In verses 1, 2, and 3, they were, pardon me, they were indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We get to verse 4, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Two different things, say it with me, two different things. Every Christian is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Is every Christian filled with the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. To have the Holy Spirit indwell me is to have him there living within me, but not necessarily in control or filling me. But to be filled with the Spirit is another thing altogether. Now, on this day, when he came for the first time, these two things seemed to almost happen simultaneously. But let's let's pursue the rest of verse 4 here. In verse 4, it says, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, this is where the fanaticism, this is where the false teaching has come in that so permeated America today. And I want you to look real careful at that. They began to speak with other tongues. The word tongues in the Greek here is glossolalia. And you know what glossolalia means? It simply means languages. They began to speak with other languages. They didn't have time to go to language school. They never took French or German or Greek or Hebrew in their, in their, uh, in their life. Simple Hebrew people who all spoke Hebrew. But look what happens. And I'll prove to you the interpretation because the interpretation is in the Bible. This is not an ecstatic language. This is not a prayer language. This is not a, a babbling language. This is known languages that are being spoken throughout the Roman Empire. To prove my point, go down to verse 8. The people were, they were just overwhelmed. How is it that we hear every man in our own tongue? Language. The language wherein we were born. The native language, like we speak English, our native language. And then it lists for you the various languages that they spoke in that day that the Holy Spirit had suddenly empowered them to speak in. And you have all those languages, the languages of the Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites and the Mesopotamians and Cappadocians and so on. I'm not even going to read the rest of them. Seventeen different languages. Languages that God supernaturally gave them the ability to speak in. Notice there in verse four, it doesn't say anything about an unknown tongue. These are languages. What is called today, the unknown tongue is something entirely different and dealt with in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So we're not even talking about that. We're talking about this Holy Spirit came and the evidence of his coming was a rushing mighty wind that filled the room. And Tongues of fire came upon each of the disciples there, and the flames looked around their faces and around their body and around their appearance. Supernatural events. And then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit after having been indwelled by the Holy Spirit once and for all. And then. God gave them the ability to supernaturally speak 17 languages. They went out into the city of Jerusalem and began to talk to people. And at the end of the day, 3,000 people had come to Christ and been saved and baptized in that day. That's the teaching simply of this. Now let's talk about that phrase in verse 4, chapter 2, and verse 4, the filling of the Holy Ghost, the filling of the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt once But we're filled many times. Don't forget what I just said. We are filled or we are indwelt once. We are are indwelt once. We are filled many, many times. Let me prove it to you. I'll prove it to you beginning in chapter, let's see, let's go to chapter 4. Chapter 4 and verse 8. Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. Wait a minute, he just filled with the Holy Ghost in chapter 2 and verse 4. But now he's filled again. You see that in your Bible? You see that for yourself? He's filled in chapter 2 and verse 4. Now he's filled again in chapter 4 and uh, verse 8. Okay, go with me down to verse 31, the same chapter. When they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. So here the whole crowd that was filled in chapter 2 and verse 4 is filled again, chapter 4 and verse 31. Go to chapter 6 and verse 3. They need some help, these apostles. And who do they want to help them? Not somebody who is half backslidden or cold or disinterested, but they said, Look out among you, seven men of honest report and full of the Holy Ghost. We want spirit filled deacons, Sunday school teachers, leaders in the church to help the apostles with their ministry. If they're not filled with the Spirit, they can't do much for us. They can only do what human ability can lead them to do. Chapter 7 and verse 55. One of those deacons is now being stoned to death by a mob of people illegally who should have been a court, and all law and order had broken down. Insanity reigns, and in they're killing poor Stephen. And in chapter 55, as the stones fell upon him, he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up into heaven. And it even enabled him to die being filled with the Spirit. Chapter 9, verse 17. The greatest enemy that Christianity had ever had. His name was Saul. And in verse 17, well, let's look at chapter 9. And verse 15. The Lord said unto this man who was going to help him, Go thy way. He is a chosen vessel to me. To bear my name. That's witnessing before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Ananias went his way. He entered into the house. Now Saul has already been saved back there in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Now Ananias goes into the house where Saul is. And he said, Brother Saul, the Lord. Even Jesus, that appeared unto me in the way as you came, has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. We're indwelled one time at the moment of salvation. There are many fillings of the Spirit. Why is the filling repeated over and over? D.L. Moody said it best I leak. Do you leak? Oh, boy, do we leak? We leak like a sieve. And I get up in the morning and I say, Lord, here I am. I'm your child. Use me today and fill me with your Spirit and direct me and guide me. And then something happens and, uh uh-oh, I've leaked. The Holy Spirit is not in charge like I want him to be and like he should be. Now, one other verse on it, and I think we'll have a pretty good concept. I want you to go to the book of Ephesians, and I want you to go to chapter number 5 of Ephesians, and I want to show you something interesting in an old, familiar passage. In chapter 5, verse 18 of Ephesians, be not drunk with wine. But what's the alternative to being drunk? Be filled with wine the Spirit. Do you know three times in the New Testament it compares being drunk with being filled with the Spirit? John the Baptist, when the angel announced his birth, it compared alcohol, intoxicating alcohol, and being filled with the Spirit. And he was never to touch a drop of it. And then we come to Acts chapter 2 and they began to be filled with the spirit, and they began to witness all over Jerusalem and had this supernaturally, a, a supernatural ability to speak in the known languages of the people who were there for Pentecost. And the people began to say, "These men must be drunk. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. These men surely are drunk. And so we have the comparison there. And then we come here, and Paul says, "Don't be drunk." With wine, that's excess. It's sinful. It's giving into the flesh. But be filled with the Spirit. Why did he compare being drunk with an intoxicating alcoholic beverage with being filled with the Spirit? Here's why Being filled with the Spirit is not being filled like we fill a glass full of water. Not talking, the word doesn't mean that. In the original scripture. What does it mean? It means to be controlled. To be filled in such a way that you're under the control of another. So when the Bible says be filled with the Spirit, it means be controlled with the Spirit. Listen to me. Like a drunk man is controlled by the alcohol, you are to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. watch a drunk, a few glasses or whatever. And he's totally out of control, isn't he? He's controlled by what he's been drinking. His whole personality changes. Everything about him is different. He takes on another person, persona, as it were. He's under the control of something else. Now, don't be under the control of of intoxicating alcohol, but be positive under the control of the Holy Spirit. I believe that people's desire to drink is the devil's substitute for being filled with the Spirit of God. Because when you get filled with the Spirit of God, you just don't need it. You just don't need it. So the filling of the Spirit, a repeated thing here, now, quickly, what are the requirements then? In this, if we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 church, I've tried to establish we receive the Holy Spirit when we get saved. And then we're filled with the Holy Spirit repeatedly. You can be filled with the Spirit every day of your life. Refilled, if you will. So what are the requirements then to be filled with the Spirit? Number one. The conditions for you to be filled, get it? I want you to understand it. The conditions are, number one, you pray. And you pray a lot. When did the Holy Spirit come? He came after 10 days of prayer. You pray. And I think there's an emphasis, and I don't have time to prove this from Scripture this morning, but I I can. The emphasis in the prayer ought to be on repentance of sin and confession, confession. Of my sins A man listened to the famous missionary Praying hide pray He said he got on his knees And for five minutes There was absolute dead silence As he prayed with this most famous of all prayers At that time in history He said I looked over And his eyes were shut There was an intensity on his face I could sense he was thinking deeply. He was grappling in his soul. And then he began to pray. And he began to talk to the Lord about his failings and his... It wasn't big sins in his life, but just the little picadillos, the little things we make excuses for, the things we just think are natural to life. And he sought total purification, total cleansing for the sins of his life things that nobody knew anything about lust covetousness envy pride bad feelings toward other people prejudice prejudice animosity Things that you can go around and everybody think you're the greatest Christian in Florence. But our heart's full of that stuff. We have to fight it continually. I have to confess it every day myself. Do you think that a good-looking woman isn't attractive to me? Man, I'm old, but I ain't that old. Do you think I ever covet something that belongs to somebody else? Do you ever think I'm lifted up to the spirit of pride and look down on somebody else? You see, we go through a life with all this unreal stuff, all this stuff mounting up inside us and praying glibly with our lips, Lord, fill me with your spirit. We never deal with what we're already full of. You can't fill me if I'm half full of something else. And so it begins with prayer, a real seeking after God. And where God has filled people wonderfully and used them through the centuries, it's been because they prayed seriously with an emphasis upon confession of sin. And then turn to Acts 5 and 32. And I'll show you the second qualification. That's about it, really. Acts 5 and 32. And it's unmistakably clear. We are his witnesses of these things, said Peter. And so is also the Holy Ghost. Look clearly. Look, look real hard at it. So is the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. And so the Holy Spirit fills me when I'm obedient. When, I'm say, when I've said, Lord, I surrender all. When I say, Lord, I believe now I've confessed my sins and I'm clean before you and I yield my life. Help me to be obedient in everything that I know to be obedient in. Well, when that happens, what does a spirit-filled Christian look like? you could have looked at the people in Acts chapter 2 church, what would they have looked like? Real quickly, the book of Galatians chapter 5. It was visible. You can tell a spirit-filled Christian. You can tell one today. You can tell one at the Florence Baptist Temple because they have the fruit of the Spirit, right? Acts chapter 5 verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. In fact, notice fruit is singular. There's really only one fruit. There's just nine manifestations of it, okay? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Then it's joy, like a fountain springing up within us. A sense of joy. Not happy, but joy. Deeper than happy. There's peace. Peace. When I'm around spirit-filled people, I can tell because there's a peacefulness about their spirit. There's not, there's not a turbulence and a confusion about them. There's a calmness, peace. A spirit-filled person is long-suffering. They have patience. And they're gentle. And today, we would just simply say kind. It's the same word in the New Testament. They're kind. They're not harsh and mean-spirited. They don't fly off the handle. They don't call their spouse names or holler at the kids in a way that doesn't show love. Gentle. And they're good. And they have faith in God's Word. And there's meekness. That's humility. They're humble people. They're not braggadocious, not arrogant. Don't look down on other people. There's not pride there controlling them. And there's temperance, self-control. Character sketch of a spirit-filled Christian. Looks a lot like Jesus, huh? <laughs> Looks an awful lot like a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they do one other thing. They witness you say, come on, it's just part of your program to get us to witness. No, just read it here. Acts chapter one, verse eight. After you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, you shall be witnesses. 433, with great power gave the apostles witness. Stop, look, listen, look up here at me. If 90% of the people, the evangelical Christians in America, never win a soul to Christ, never seek to witness, then 90% of the Christians in America are not spirit-filled people. To be spirit-filled is to be unashamed of Jesus Christ. He means enough to me that I really don't care what somebody else thinks. And every person I meet, every single person I meet is a soul inhabiting a body and the body's passing away. But the soul is ever living never dying, endless, dateless, timeless, eternal. Every time my heart beats, it's a muscle drum beating a funeral march to the grave. And I was out there in that cemetery yesterday laying to rest my good friend and neighbor John Dowling. And I looked at those tombstones. There's only three things on a tombstone when you were born, when you died and your name and you can be the big man in town it don't much matter when you stand out there in the city of the dead and look over those stones John Dowling was one of the most generous men I ever met he gave the first $7,000 to start the Frank Monroe Scholarship Fund I told the story at his funeral. I went to pay him for my dad's funeral, and he said, your daddy wanted to train people to preach the gospel. Here's your check back. Open an account and start a scholarship fund so you can train young people. That was the kind of man. He could have been a gazillionaire. All the people he buried, I had 200 funerals with him. He could have been a gazillionaire and he gave most of it away. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is where's your soul going to go. That's why we have church. It's not a social thing. My soul. You know, we're beginning to catch it. We're really beginning to get a hold of this Acts chapter 2 thing. Not everybody, but a lot of us. This week, one of our men witnessed to a 91-year-old uncle who has been a judge in the state of South Carolina until his retirement. And that uncle went through that four questions track and received Christ as his Savior. So I'll turn on the lighthouse house. And... Uh, One of the young men down here, our one of our Sunday school teachers, was out doing his work and witnessed to a 60-year-old man in a nearby town. He talked to the guy, and just in the course of delivering some goods to him, and the man received Christ as his savior. Ron Lows was over in Atlanta. He talked to a store owner, friend of his for two hours about the gospel of Christ. Nolan Johnson saw somebody with a t-shirt on and it had the names of all the big cities in the world, you know, Athens and Rome and Paris and so on. And he said, well, have you ever walked the Romans road? And he talked to them about their soul. And Naomi Lowe was on a passenger plane and she took witness to the person next door to them. And Ryan Cottle gathered five college students around him out on the Francis Marion campus. And he shared with them the good news of Christ. And one of our men, and I won't give his name because of his job, but he was called to the scene of a shooting as a self-inflicted wound. And a group of men met out in the yard and were standing there talking And he began to talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Normal course of conversation. And one of those men ultimately prayed to receive Christ as his Savior. And yours truly, Monday night, I was out in the country. I mean, so far in the country, my GPS wouldn't work. 10 miles on the other side of Timmonsville or something but I met this wonderful gracious family and I talked to them and the gentleman followed me out and I'm standing out under the stars in the middle of the field beside my car and I had the opportunity to share Christ with him. We're beginning to get it. The point of coming to church is not to hear Brother Bill preach even when he's unprepared. The point of the church is to get the gospel to the whole world and every creature because we're all on our way to eternity. Stand to your feet with me if you will.